Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Are you concerned about big tech monitoring your data? Many of you might be aware that your actions on the internet are under surveillance. Tech companies and government agencies use this data to build profiles on you that monitor your beliefs, relationships, and habits. A lot of this data is harvested from the apps on your computer. One of my fans has designed a desktop app called Synthetic Notes, which is a normal notes app with several key differences. Unlike most apps, it doesn't use a subscription model. That means once you've bought it once, it's yours forever. Compare that to other companies that charge you over $100 a year. Synthetic Notes also stores all of your data on your local machine, away from psychoanalytic algorithms and cloud databases. This, combined with the fact that it's not a subscription app, means that Synthetic Notes never needs to connect to the internet. You can safely quarantine the app, and it will still work completely fine. By paying for Synthetic Notes, you are buying back your privacy. Go to syntheticapps.com forward slash and use my code ZUBY, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout to get 25% off. That's SyntheticApps.com forward slash ZUBY, and use my code ZUBY at checkout for 25% off. Protect your privacy. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a champion of religious liberty and freedom of speech. He is the executive director of ADF International, and this is Paul Coleman. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to have you here, Paul. So I've done a brief intro there, but please tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Absolutely. So, yeah, I lead the work of ADF International. ADF stands for Alliance Defending Freedom. And as you say, uh, core of what we do is defending freedom of religion and freedom of speech uh, around the world. I'm a UK solicitor, so I'm a lawyer, um, but I've lived in Vienna, Austria for the past decade, and that's where we are headquartered. So, yeah, I'm a Brit abroad um, and continue to work on these issues of uh, defending fundamental freedoms all around the world uh, from here in Austria. What's the story of how you got involved in this work? Oh, that's a good question. That takes me back. So I was in Newcastle where I studied and um, studying as, as a law student. And at the time, um, around about 2005, six. Um, for whatever reason, there was a lot of bills going through Parliament at that time that were uh, particularly interesting to lawyers and, and law students. One of them was, for example, the religious hatred bill that was going through and, and several others that were really starting to um, change or challenge our longstanding um, understanding of some of our uh, core concepts of uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and other issues. All this was happening as I was a law student. Um, and of course, because that was interesting, doesn't mean that there's necessarily 
a job involved in it. There isn't for most. Um, however, for me, I really continued on with my legal studies and continued uh, to stay in the legal profession in order to be able to work on these issues. And so I uh, did a training contract in London for two years, and I was able to continue working on these issues through that law firm, along with the other things that I had to do. And then I was able to join ADF and do this work full-time as an in-house lawyer for ADF uh, for the past decade. So really for me, and that, that's an unusual story. Most people, you know, they've had a long time in private practice doing other things and they come into this sort of work later. But for me, this is what interested me to begin with, even as a law student. And so mm. I just wanted to continue doing that in my profession. What is it that made you feel these particular issues were so important or even under threat? Because something that's really interesting about the time we, we live in, I think, is that I think a lot of people believe that freedom and liberty are something that we are always progressing towards, especially in the Western world. And those are things that, I, you know, are just going to, by default, keep getting better and society will keep becoming more free. But I think that a lot of people have realized very recently in some cases that that is not necessarily the case, but it sounds like that's something you saw being encroached upon um, about, I don't know, 15 plus years ago. So number one, I guess, how did you see that and why do you feel it's so important to defend that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I don't, I don't think there was any one uh, particular moment for me that, that stood out as a sort of you know, enlightening moment, but... Um, there were a number of organizations involved back then in the, in the UK who were raising the alarm bells about some of the bills that were going through Parliament, some of the changes that were being seen within the, um, yeah, the British legal system. Particularly, um, Tony Blair's government was very active in passing a lot of legislation, which I think everyone's aware of, and a lot of fundamental changes to the legal system occurred at that time, whether we're talking about the introduction of uh, for example, the, the Human Rights Act into the UK legal system, uh, the Equality Act, which culminated in 2010, but was preceded by a series of other bills. Uh, there was the Human Fertilization Embryology Act in 2008, which fundamentally changed um, how the law uh, applied towards uh, life and the embryo. Um, and then a whole raft of um, terrorism legislation at the turn of the century as well, which a lot of lawyers and others were warning about how this was going to be applied in terms of uh, freedoms and mm -hmm. what have you. And so I was just um, studying at the time that all of this was sort of happening. And then a lot of, um, in fact, Christian organizations, as well as the others that you'd expect, were raising their voices. So I was based in Newcastle, which is where uh, the Christian Institute has its headquarters. They were campaigning on a lot of these different issues. So mm -hmm. I was able to get to know a lot of their staff and hear firsthand what was going on. And then there were others. There's the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. And then, and then ADF itself, which started as a U.S. organization, but even as early as 2006, seven, were um, in the U.K. And, and talking about some of these things from their perspective, too. So I think I just happened to um, have access to some of those voices and some of the people who were on the front line of some of these battles. And so it, I sort of just caught the bug for it 
as a student and then wanted to stay in it ever since. And then, so, yeah, and what was okay. your second question? Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, well, actually, before I get onto that, I have a question. So something that strikes me with what you just said is besides that third one about fertilization, which sounds like it could go either way, those other things you mentioned, um, Equality Act, Human Rights Bill, counterterrorism legislation to a layperson, all of these things sound good and positive and things that you'd actually want in society. So why did those ring alarm bells for you? Yeah, and, and, and for sure, there's lots of good components to them. And, and what I do now is, you know, I'm practicing human rights law, let's say, at the European Court of Human Rights. And that's how I'm able to do it here in, in, in Vienna, because um, it's a um, jurisdiction that covers all of the different European countries. And so we're still very actively involved in these. But um, and they're not all bad by any means. Um, but what they were doing, these, these pieces of legislation and others, were um, creating huge shifts and changes within the legal system. So I suppose that's what I mean. And, and within that, it was creating new debates about rights, freedoms, liberties, and things that had not been legislated on in this way within the English legal system before. And it was all happening pretty much at the same time. All of this unfolded um, over a, about a 10, 15 year period, which happened to be the time that I was studying and, and looking into these things. And so, yeah, but I, the words like equality and, and human rights and, and freedom and several others, I mean, these are broad terms that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And so what we've found certainly in the last 20 years, within the manipulation and to an extent weaponization of language, is um, nice sounding terminology is used to advance things that are doing uh, the exact opposite. And of course, this isn't new. This is exactly what Orwell was writing about. And we see this play out uh, in lots of different ways. And we have done throughout all different cultures. Do you think that the intention behind these things is typically what it says on the label? Or do you think that the label is attached to make it seem that way, whereas the actual motive might be more directly sinister? What are your thoughts? Because I think that's, that's a constant debate, isn't it? Which mm -hmm. is, okay, are some of these ideas and policies, are, are these things being done, they're meant to do well, and then they end up causing problems that were not foreseen? Or is it more malicious, and then they're trying to stick a nice label like equality or diversity or equity or something mm -hmm. else to it to allow it to pass through without people raising any eyebrows? Yeah. Well, I think it's both. So I think that, and certainly this is just my personal interaction working on these in, in courts and in the legislatures over the years. There's obviously a lot of very well-intentioned, well-meaning people who uh, get into um, lawmaking and, and politics because they want to, of course, make the world uh, a better place. And so um, they're going along with a lot of this. Um, but I think there, there's enough that I've seen and witnessed and continue to see that it's not just that. It's not just, oh, whoops, this is too broad and now <laughs> what, look what's happened. How did that happen? Yeah. But there's also... I would say, and that's why I say it's um, to an extent a weaponization of language, not by everyone by any means, but um, 
certainly I would say there's a deliberate component to how some words and language are used. And I mean, if I just give the example, so when I moved to to Vienna, one of the first things I started working researching on was um, European hate speech laws, which um, a decade ago wasn't really being talked about very much. And I started looking into it and and then ultimately uh, wrote a book on it because it was interesting enough to to not just be some boring abstract legal thing, but it was yeah. Uh, at least in my mind, it was it was interesting enough for a book. But um, if you take the concept of of hate speech, for example, we have hate crime and hate incidents. Um, this is one of those examples where you see both, I think, some good intentions and also some maliciousness. So um, there are obviously people well-intentioned who want to um, prevent hate speech. Hate speech that is harmful, it's not very nice, we want to live in a society uh, where there is no hate speech. And, and their intentions there are, I think, good. Um, however, the maliciousness comes in, I think, when it comes to, okay, well, hang on, let's, let's start trying to pin down and define uh, what is meant here by hate speech. How can we now, if we're going to criminalize this, we're going to put people in prison for doing this, then let's try and get some pretty tight definitions. And at that point, you see terminology and definitions being sort of smuggled in to the to the package that I think are, are deliberately going to cause a, a limiting of speech, are deliberately going to um, be able to uh, censor political opponents, be able to shut down uh, one side of the debate. And I don't think that's just happening by accident as a, as a byproduct. Mm. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I hear you 100% there. So tell me a little bit more about the work that you got into when you first joined ADF International, because you've been with them for several years now. So what are some of the key cases or things that you got involved involved with from from early. Yeah, so um, as I say, we we work on defending, I uh, would say, fundamental freedoms um, around the world, and so we have offices outside of Europe, but uh, five here in in Europe as well. Particularly looking at what's happening at some of the international institutions like the United Nations, the European Union, and the European Court of Human Rights, and so. As a lawyer, what I've been doing um, is working on cases and trying to shape the case law of the European Court of Human Rights in a, in a favorable direction by bringing good cases to that court and hopefully uh, setting positive precedents that will have an impact on all of the, the countries in Europe. And so there's a whole range of issues that we've worked on over the years, for example, defending the autonomy and rights and freedoms of churches or uh, for example, defending um, people who have sought asylum in, in Europe because they have uh, converted to Christianity, for example, from Islam, and countries in Europe wanting to deport them to places that they would face the death penalty and trying to um, protect their freedoms, um, to issues of freedom of speech and protecting the rights and freedoms of, of speech across Europe in terms of whether that be, um, yeah. Pastors, preachers, journalists, campaigners, you know, a whole spectrum, really. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, free speech is such an interesting concept because it's very much the foundation of a lot of what makes the Western world unique and as successful, I think, as it has been in many regards. However, I don't think that the average person in the UK or Canada or even America truly understands why it is so important. So from your perspective, especially as a lawyer and an advocate for this, can you explain why you believe freedom of speech is important and perhaps more importantly, why it should supersede somebody's um, ability to not be insulted or not be offended, let's say. Yeah, I think that it's sometimes it's easy to see the value of freedom of speech by comparing it to places or situations where, where there isn't any, and, and then seeing the negative consequences of what happens when there isn't freedom of speech, because it's something that we so easily take for granted. But if we just look back just such a short time in our history of in, in Europe, what it was like in Eastern Europe, uh, what it was like in the, in the Soviet bloc during that time, and what a destructive impact and effect uh, that had on the whole of society. Um, so I think that in order to show its value, it's sometimes helpful to show what happens where you, where you don't have it. And I think in terms of why it's so important, it enables the, the free exchange of ideas. And without that free exchange of ideas between citizens, then there really isn't a democracy. And so it, it's really, it gets to the very heart of, of what it means to live in a democracy, because without that discussion, without that debate amongst citizens, then there is no real democracy there. And so it's, I think it's impossible to say that you could have a democracy in how we know it, um, without that fundamental uh, protection of freedom of expression. And that's why it has to be protected and it has to be seen as being more important than someone else's claimed right to not be offended, someone else's claimed right uh, not to be insulted. And I think we can do that while still acknowledging that insult and offense causes some measure of harm. I don't think we need to just say, well, just, you know, suck it up. Um, who cares? Because I think that it's clear, and it's clear to, I think, to most people that there is, there can be some form of harm in terms of people feeling uh, insulted and offensive. But we should fear the censorship more than we should fear that harm that is caused, if we, if we have to weigh those things mm -hmm. up, because the censorship will ultimately be far more damaging. And ultimately, it will be more damaging not just to the person who is censored in that moment, but it will eventually continue and spill out into other areas. And I think you what we're seeing right now is a very casual attitude amongst uh, lawmakers and elites in regards to freedom of expression because they're carrying this assumption that it's never going to affect them. And so it's not really a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, history would show us it doesn't work like that. You, you don't get to just contain it in a little box. And there was the, I think it was the, one of the former presidents of the, the ACLU, um, 
in the US who, for viewers' interest, is often on the other side of some of these debates to ADF in, in the US. And so it's not by any means that we are uh, aligned, but we are largely or have been over the years on free speech. And I forget his name, but he made a point about censorship saying it's, it's like it's like deploying poison gas as a weapon. It might seem great when you've got your enemy in your sight, but then the winds change. And I mm. think that that is, is a good analogy. It's true, and yes. it's not what we're seeing at the moment with our leaders who are treating the protection of freedom of expression very casually. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think it's tricky because there is a, there's a natural innate human desire to shut up or silence or punish people who say things that you don't like, that you vehemently disagree with, or that you find offensive, or that you find insulting. I think there's this, you know, hindbrain gut instinct that, ah, like, like if you think of someone who, who is, has the complete opposite to your views, say in terms of religion and politics, there's that gut urge to, ah, I wish that person would just shut up, just be censored. You know, people shouldn't be allowed to hear what they're saying. Like, so I can understand why people sort of feel that way, right? Especially if you don't think about it very deeply and you don't think about those winds changing. It's like, yeah, of course people shouldn't be able to, you know, say hateful, hurtful stuff, insulting stuff about other people, right? Of course, of course we should get that. And then I think also a lot of people view the, the state and government solutions for everything. So because they don't like something, they think there should be a strong law about it. They forget that not everything, I'd actually say that most of our behavior, in fact, is not predicated on laws. If you think about your, your daily behavior and the way you carry and conduct yourself, I, I assume that the reason you don't go out there and rape and rob and murder people isn't simply because it's against the law and you'd go to jail if you did it. It's because we also have moral compasses. We have, uh, other ethical beliefs. We have religious beliefs. We have empathy. We, we have also social, we also have social, uh, norms and, and social laws. So a lot of behavior isn't, it's not all, not everything has to be totally regulated by, by the government is, is, is what I'm saying here. So even if you didn't have that, I think some people think, okay, if there is not a law, Everyone is just going to go out and do the thing. And it's right. like, well, no, yes, of course we should have laws against things that are directly, uh, hurting other people physically, taking away their rights, taking their private property and so on. But a lot of enforcement is really at the social level, the moral level, um, even, even within families, within communities, all of that. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, miss out on that. And and also I think when it comes to freedom of speech, people tend to always think of it from you know people people who question its value, they seem to always think of it as it being used to it, a- attack people, right? They think of they think of the worst speech possible. Yes. They don't think about advocacy for things that they believe in or things that they value. They don't think that all these civil rights movements in the past um which have gained you know, greater rights and access to people of all sorts, whether you're talking race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, whatever, without the concept of freedom of speech, 
that wouldn't have been possible. You would just, oh, Martin Luther King, throw that guy in prison. This guy, oh, throw that person in prison. Throw this activist in prison. So people also forget that so many of the things that they themselves may even advocate for and believe in, that only got to that stage because people were allowed to use their voices. They were allowed to protest. They were allowed to be activists. They were allowed to have these debates and these conversations, which have actually led to a much more equal and harmonious society. I completely agree, and um, with with all of those points. And on the, on the last one, I, I think it's it's a great point in terms of the protection of freedom of, of expression uh, that you mentioned in terms of the minority voices, because so much of the censorship that is put forward today is put forward uh, to protect minority groups, uh, minority voices. And I mean, just if we look around the world, where we have some of the most obvious restrictions on speech. So, for example, some of the authoritarian and extremist laws in, in Russia or blasphemy laws in Pakistan. Now, are those laws protecting the minority groups in those countries or are they targeting them? And then as we look throughout history and we think of your example, Martin Luther King, if, if the US had had um, modern day European ha- uh, hate speech laws in place uh, then, would those have come to the aid of Martin Luther King, or would they have been used to silence him? And, yeah. and the answer to all this is, is, is crystal clear. You know, historically, and then comparatively, as we look around the world, there's enough evidence to say that in an, over enough passage of time, these laws do not help minority voices, but will ultimately be turned against and, and, and will hinder them. And in regard to the um, the two other points, the, this inherent desire to shut down opponents combined with a quite modern understanding that the government, and in this case the police, is here to solve all my problems, I think this is probably fueling the, the, the Western drive towards censorship, perhaps more than anything else, particularly at the legislative level. And almost everyone you speak to now about almost any issue is what's the government going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And and the sad part about that in regard to free speech is it takes away role of citizens to have that um, internal uh, decision-making in terms of what are they going to do to protect the rights and freedoms of others and what are they going to do um, to be an engaged citizen because everything becomes reliant on the police and the state to solve all of this for us. And that's just another sad way in which our our democracy is weakened as a result. Absolutely. So there's a major case which is going on, I believe, in Finland, which you've been dealing with, which is with a, am I correct in saying she's a Finnish politician or former politician? Um, Paivi Rasanen, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Hey, that was... the best pronunciation I have heard from a non-Finnish person so far. Oh, really? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I I, I have um, a name that gets messed up a lot myself, <laughs> so I actually am quite careful about trying to say people's names properly to the best of my ability. Well, yeah, you got that one You're very close. <laughs> I've been I've, so I've been supporting Pavy for two and a half years, and um, been over there a few times to be there uh, this week for her trial, and I. I probably try pronouncing her name 
um, you know, every time. And they're very gracious and sweet with me. And, and saying, yeah, yeah, it's not bad, but I, I know <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a terrible job. But so, so Pivy is a member of Finnish Parliament. She's been a member of Parliament for over 25 years. Um, she has, throughout that long political career, also served as a government minister, the Minister of Interior, which, for example, in the UK context would be like the Home Secretary. Uh, she served as the first um, woman uh, serving as the chairwoman of her party and many other roles as well. She's also uh, a mother, a grandmother, and active within the civil society and, and church community within Finland. And so she is, as I say, I've met her on numerous occasions. Um, She's incredibly friendly, uh, incredibly uh, sweet lady, um, uh, very gracious. And in 2019, the state church, that, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church, Finland, um, decided to become an official sponsor of the Helsinki Pride Parade. And as a member of that church, and her husband is a Lutheran, minister within that church so she didn't know what to do about this thought about it and then decided you know she was going to say something so she found her bible she took a picture of some bible verses from the new testament book of romans um she uploaded that picture to twitter and then she sent a tweet essentially questioning the church leadership and asking the church how it um, justified its decision to sponsor Pride Parade in light of what she said the Bible taught, and then thought nothing of it. You know, she's a public uh, a public figure, so she's very active on social media and other media engagements. So um, very used to just sending things and, and tweeting and whatever. Um, and then it became the subject of a police investigation. And so she was questioned by the police over this tweet. And then in the course of that investigation, uh, a number of other investigations started to be opened up as well. And she's been, as I say, in public office for a long time. They went back as 2004 to a pamphlet that she had written for her church on, um, again, on biblical teaching, on sexuality, on gender called Male and Female, he created them. So they went all the way back to 2004, dug this uh, pamphlet out, 23-page pamphlet. And then also there was a TV show where she gave an interview about some of these things and a radio show where she was involved in a sort of radio debate and they pulled three minutes out of a one-hour show from that as well. I imagine taking a couple minutes of this conversation and then making it a criminal indictment. And so all told, um, she then faced multiple um, police investigations. She would go down to the police station where she would be questioned um, what her beliefs were, uh, what her interpretation of the Bible was, what did the Apostle Paul mean by these words, um, wow. opening up the book of Genesis, uh, what do these words mean? And, and she, I was with her before Christmas and she was joking saying that when she was telling her friends and family about this, they would say, oh, Pivy, going to your police Bible study tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it became. It's absolutely wow. absurd. It's just absurd. And so in, in April of last year, the police had already um, 
made lengthy recommendations not to continue with the prosecution in a number of these different charges. But nevertheless, the general prosecutor of Finland decided to prosecute her on three charges, the tweet, the booklet, and this three-minute segment from this radio debate, together with a bishop of the Lutheran Church who published the booklet in 2004. So he is facing prosecution for publishing this booklet almost 20 years ago. And, I mean, one final tidbit, the booklet was written years before the law that they're being prosecuted under was even passed. So they're going back in time before the law was even adopted. And they will be in Helsinki District Court Monday the 24th of January uh, facing four charges of hate speech, maximum sentence, two years in prison. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I mean, in the UK, I know that these things can happen. Um, I actually know, uh, Mark Meachin or Count Dankula, who I believe was the first person in the UK who was prosecuted for a joke, mm-hmm. um, and was potentially facing jail time for that and was, was made to pay a fine. So I'm not sort of totally blindsided by this, but at the same time, it's so absurd. It's one of those things where, I mean, this happens a lot these days where something almost doesn't sound real. It sounds maybe like it's from, from South Park or from some kind of novel or something. Cause you're just like, wait, come on. This, this is, this is obviously yeah. silly. This is obviously not what the police and the courts and the whole judicial system is intended for. This is something that should just be nipped in the bud. Shouldn't even have been a big thing in the first place, but it seems like once people kind of start down this road and they want to, prove a point with it then right. they just carry on what what's been the what's been the general public response in finland um i'm not really familiar with a lot of things that are going on in that country but are people generally supportive of her is it a you know is there a lot of opposition what's what's that been like it, it's generated an increasing amount of, of public response and so um and it's been mixed I would say, based on my discussions with uh, now Finnish friends, that it's been largely supportive. And there's, there's been a feeling of shock within the country that this is all happening. Um, and and Paivi herself has received a lot of support, as you'd expect, from people within her own community. But, but many supporters who say, look, I don't agree with you. Don't, you know, I'm not aligned with your values on these issues. But... I completely support your right to be able to just speak your mind and to um, have your freedom of speech. And so there has been a huge amount of support within Finland. And then also from outside Finland as well, there have been um, just so many people um, who have shown interest in, in this case from all around the world who have then been getting in touch with um, journalists and the public prosecutor's office asking for statements, everything within Finland. And so what's been, I think, amusing to me to an extent is I would say that within the, as far as I can tell and perceive from within the Finnish sort of, um, you know, uh, elitist ruling class, let's say, there seems to be more shock at the outpouring of shock about this case than there is about the case itself. And so I was doing a, an interview with a Finnish journalist earlier in the week, and he was saying, why does anyone care about this? 
And I was saying, well, how can you not care? You were talking about a grandmother going to prison for tweeting a picture of some Bible verses. <laughs> and you're, you're asking me why I care about that. And this person's a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the thing about people thinking, oh, it'll never, uh, it, it'll never come back to bite me. I mean, it right. blows my mind that a journalist cannot see the yeah. concerns around that, especially okay. when around the world in a whole bunch of countries, even in the mighty USA, which has the, the strongest, um, freedom of speech rights, you have had journalists mm-hmm. investigated, imprisoned, um, you know, tried for things that they have posted or, and things that they have written. That's, that's a very real thing. Well, I think, and this is part of the almost, let's say, free speech schizophrenia that we see and this casual attitude towards this, oh, well, it will never happen to me because I can somehow contain this and people I disagree with can stay silenced and people I agree with can have their rights protected. And it, the irony of the Nobel Peace Prize, and you imagine in neighboring Norway, they're giving out the Peace Prize to two journalists for freedom of expression. And then next door, this extremely experienced member of parliament is facing a jail sentence for her freedom of expression. And then there's no sense of irony here at all. That somehow, that this is, yeah, we can, freedom of speech is great if we're protecting journalists in Russia and Asia. Um, but when it comes to our own doorstep, well, you know, obviously we want to silence that and censor that. Yeah, it's all very interesting to me. And I think perhaps the reason why this issue fascinates me perhaps even more than a lot of people is, you know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I lived in Saudi Arabia for for 20 years. So I have grown up and spent a lot of time in a country with a very, very different culture, different legal system. It's not a democracy. There's no political parties. These concepts such as, um, you know, complete freedom of speech and freedom of expression and even freedom to, to dr- dress however you want and generally do various things. That doesn't, that's not a thing over there. So, you know, whilst there are pros and cons that I can recognize to all different types of systems, something that has always stood out to me with countries like the UK, USA, Western Europe, etc., has been that concept of what you could call classical liberalism, right? Individual rights, everybody being treated equally, generally being allowed to do what you want as long as you you are not, um, you know, directly harming or infringing on somebody else's rights. So when I see all of this stuff, I'm just like, man, this is just the woke version of blasphemy laws. That's exactly right. And that, and that is what I think a lot of people have, have tried to point out that we are reinventing blasphemy laws in the West as a new form of uh, blasphemy and we call it hate speech laws and it's it's uh, you know the um, the things that you're not allowed to say they don't relate to religion and a god anymore but they relate to political orthodoxies and other orthodoxies which cannot be questioned mm-hmm. um, even COVID and, and COVID and, and yep. <laughs> yeah the scary thing is with this is there's no limiting principle that will stop the number of orthodoxies that have a right and a wrong view. And so, um, 
as much as I'm opposed to, to blasphemy laws, we work on this issue in countries like Pakistan and elsewhere. Um, when it comes to the, the hate speech laws of Europe and this sort of you can't say that culture, the cancel culture and the censorship that we're seeing across the West, we're seeing an exponential growth in the number of issues that, yeah, there is a right and a wrong opinion on. And so a lot of what comes across my desk relates to issues of, for example, gender and sexuality, uh, unborn life and religion. That's just the nature of, of my work, my organization. But then I see as well outside of that, okay, there's a right and a wrong way to think about um, issues to do with climate change. There's a right and a wrong way to think about issues to do with immigration. There's a right and a wrong way to think, as we all know, uh, to do with things to do with COVID. And these are, are not determined by any of us. It's, it's almost, it solidifies into an orthodoxy so fast. And then you, if you're on the wrong side of it, then what we're seeing is it's not enough that you're just wrong and that you have wrong thinking, but you have to be silenced, uh, you have to be punished. And there is no, as I said, there's no limiting principle to stop the number of issues that's going to end up applying to. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I have a theory slash hypothesis that no matter what human beings are inherently religious and those same patterns that can happen in very fundamentalist uh, religious ideologies, either right now in certain parts of the world or in the past, it's so hard to truly detach people from that. You know, I, I'm a Christian myself, but I know that there are a lot of, say, atheists out there who kind of have this idea that, oh, if let, let's say more anti-theist type atheists who think that, oh, if we could root out religion, you know, religion has caused all these problems and divisions and even wars and stuff. If we could get rid of that and everything just be science-based and, and rational and logical and whatever, then we'd have this kind of utopia of human flourishing. And I'm just like... No, you'll just have, you'll right. just have new secular religions, I'll yeah. call them, where people have that same desire for meaning and purpose and community and righteous anger and morality and original sin and whatever. It's going to come out as, as wokeism or branch covidianism or this ideology or that. Even, even some of these political, like when you see some of these political activists, I'm like, this is just another, this is just your own version of, of a religion and you are being just as fundamentalist and aggressive as the most, you know, hardcore, um, is Islamist or hardcore Christian or hardcore whatever. Um, you're just applying it to something different and you right. feel it's justified, of course, because you think you are the one who has the absolute morality and so everyone else is a is a heathen a blasphemer um and we need to go after them we need to punish them they're a heretic they've gone against the orthodoxy so we need to go get that person yeah absolutely absolutely and and i've heard it said that wokeism is is in a sense a bit like a religion but there's no forgiveness no grace and so mm -hmm. at least within christian religion you have also these concepts and so it's not just some of the dogma, but it's also the idea that there is this forgiveness, this grace, this mercy. Um, whereas within the wokeism of cancel culture, we don't see any of that. No. <laughs> you can be punished forever. Um, yes. Even, even no if the back. thing you did, even if the thing you did was, I mean, you, you can even be dead and you still got to be punished. 
Right. You know, if it be, you could be a white guy who died in 1850, and yeah. if we find, <laughs> if you had some 1850 views on racial issues or whatever, then it doesn't matter what else you achieved in your life. You, um, you know, every statue of you needs to be ripped down. Every painting needs to be taken down. Your name needs to be taken off every road, every school, and and so on. Yeah, or as we're seeing now, you know, sadly and increasingly, we're talking about 15, 16 year old kids who tweeted something years ago and now they're applying for a job or trying to get into a university and they're having scholarships taken away from them or you know, whatever it may be. There is just no, you know, yeah, no acceptance or forgiveness. <laughs> <of anything. laughs> no, it's pretty crazy. So speaking of this case with, um, with Pivey, I know that it's, it's coming up soon. Um, so what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I know that by, by the time this podcast comes out, it would have already happened. Is this the sort of last step of this or is there, is this going to be an ongoing thing or does it, does it depend on what happened? Yeah, it, it's, it's, um, no, it's, it's probably the, uh, first step. And, and, and this is, you know, often the challenge with these laws because we're already two and a half years in here. So it all kicked off in the summer of 2019. So now in January 2022. And so we've had years of police investigations, um, of this hanging over her. The uh, decision to prosecute was April 2021. So another, what is that, nine months of this hanging over her. Um, and then this is the Helsinki District Court, which is first instance. Now, in a UK context, if you win a criminal case like that, then, then you've won and, you know, that's the end of it. But in the Hel- uh, Finnish system, many other systems as well, both sides can appeal these decisions until it exhausts all of its different avenues. So there is the uh, first instance court, which is the 24th of January. Maybe it'll take a month or so for a decision. And then if Pavi and Bishop Johanna Pola win, then the prosecutor could appeal. Um, and then vice versa, if they lose, they could appeal. So there's an appellate stage. Then it could go to the Supreme Court, round number three. And then ultimately it could go to the European Court of Human Rights, round number four. And so by the time this is done, we're talking years and years and years. And when I was... Um, Working on the book censored, looking at some of these hate speech laws, one of my colleagues who was helping with some of the research just coined this phrase, at least coined in the context of our office, that the, the process is the punishment. Mm. And I think that's what we see. And, and you mentioned some of the UK examples. And I would say this phrase applies largely to the UK context as well. You don't see many convictions. You see these street preachers getting arrested, um, but you see very few convictions, but the process of becoming a criminal defendant, the process of having to uh, go to all of these police investigations to have something like this hanging over you, and it can take years and it can be ongoing, it just wears you down. And everyone else looking on, it's my belief or hypothesis that a lot of these prosecutions are not done because Paddy is in some way a threat to the public who needs to be incarcerated. Uh, it's done to, uh, uh, as a warning to everyone else and as a signal to everyone else that they have mm-hmm. to be careful what they say. Because even if she is ultimately acquitted, 
and news stories will run headlines saying victory for free speech. Is it a victory when she's had years of her life having yeah. to defend herself against against the machinery of the state with unlimited resources uh, to, to try and take her down? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, unfortunately, we're just at the, uh, the beginning stages. Maybe it's the the beginning of the end or however Churchill said it. Yeah, it's crazy It because ha- it has a chilling effect. And that's what we really live in the age of self-censorship. These kind of cases are pretty rare, but for every one case like this, there are millions and millions of cases of people self-censoring themselves because of this chilling effect that's been created by stuff like this, but also just this concept of cancel culture and the lack of forgiveness and salvation. As you mentioned before, people don't even want to speak because they're so afraid of, oh, what if I say the wrong thing or I use the wrong word or, you know, I say something now, which 10 years from now is no longer uh, within the Overton window. And so people self-censor themselves all the time. And that seems to be the biggest issue. As you were describing that whole thing, the thing that was just going through my mind was just like, I can't believe what an utter waste of time and energy this all is. It's such a complete waste of time. And I think with a lot of things, I think that human beings do, I think sometimes people get addicted to the process itself. So the process becomes the reason they, they know they, they've lost, they've lost sight of the original, um, so-called crime or the so-called issue. And they're so stuck in the process now that that's what they're thinking about. They're not just taking a step back and going, Okay, wait, hang on. How many thousands of, how many thousands of hours have been dedicated to this? How much money has been spent? Police time, uh, the time of, of people working in, you know, you've got people out there robbing, raping, murdering, jacking people. Like you, you've got all kinds of people out there doing genuinely bad things, which we all agree. Okay. Those people should be caught and should be punished. And then you have these situations where you're, investigating grandmas for quoting the Bible or for misgendering somebody on Twitter or for, you know, saying something that some woke activist somewhere in the world decides they don't like. And I'm just like, this is, this is just dumb. It's just, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's not productive. All of the people involved in this from Ivy to yourself, to uh, the Bishop, to the people prosecuting them, all the lawyers, the police people, you could all be doing something much more. <laughs> you could all be yeah. doing something else. That's why yeah. it's just crazy to me. I know. And it's, and it's just, um, and I think we see this within the UK as well, because we see the, the CPS and the UK guidance and everything else in terms of policing that are continuing to go down this path of trying to police speech, trying to use the arm, the police arm, which is really the strongest weapon in the state's arsenal in terms of um, behavior, in terms of controlling its citizens, that you know, using the police and the criminal law. And we just, and there's no, there's no let up from it. We're just seeing more and more in this direction. And you see more and more news stories of police not investigating uh, crimes, um, petty crimes or thefts or what have you um, because they say they don't have enough resources. And yet you see, as we did last year, five or more police officers, some of whom wearing riot gear, dragging a 71-year-old um, preacher off the streets um, 
ultimately, obviously, with all of the rest of them, they eventually let them go because no crime had been committed, and yet they're investing all those resources. It was probably a theft or some other oh, yeah. assault taking place around mm-hmm. the corner. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I think that it seems to me that a lot of people are uh, alive and aware of this at a, at a citizen level. Somehow it's just not making its way through to the decision-making level. Yeah, I think a, a big problem is no. This is a this is this is a big question, but uh, something about human beings is it's tricky to know where to draw the line between caring and apathy, right? And I think it's so. Say for example, we live in a world of almost eight billion people. There are horrible things that happen all over the world every single day. There's people crime being committed natural disasters, people dying, people hurting each other all the time. Like if you were to, I don't know, have some kind of document or website, which literally listed every every horrible thing, every death, every single day, you'd go crazy, right? You'd just be, oh my gosh, this is, this is horrible. I don't want to, I don't even want to live in this world, right? This is, this is, this is terrible. So as much as you want to care and have compassion, unless something is very close to you. It affects you directly or a family member or a friend or someone down the street. The thing, the truth is, as human beings, we naturally, as the, the sort of locus focal point close to us, as it gets further and further and further, we, we naturally care less, which on one hand is totally understandable, but on the other, it's a shame, right? If something, um, if, if a bomb goes off in, Baghdad or in Syria and you are in London, you, you care if you know about it and you feel, oh man, that, that sucks. That's sad. But then you just kind of get on with things. If it happens in Manchester or Birmingham, ooh, okay. Exact same thing happened, but whoa, that's a little close. If it happens down the street or in your town, whoa, like that's, and, and that's just how we naturally are. Right. In yeah. fact, your first thing would be, Oh my gosh, I hope I don't know anybody who was involved in it. Um, and that's just naturally how we all are. So I think with a lot of these issues, that's part of it. I think it's that level of apathy of kind of like, okay, well, okay, that kind of, that kind of sucks, but yeah. it's not somebody I know. It doesn't directly affect me. It's, it's kind of over there. So I don't really need to care about it. That's right. And so people don't necessarily see how it could encroach and how these things move. Well, you know, look, I, I need a, an NGO, so I'm very alive to this challenge because we, <laughs> we're donation-based. And so somehow, as with all other charities, uh, we have got to find a way to uh, make it clear that the issues that we're working on are relevant enough for people mm-hmm. in order that they support the work. Uh, so I'm very alive to that fact. It's definitely true. And of course, I'm completely biased in my role. But I would say that freedom of speech and protecting it, it's our building block and it's our foundation stone for engagement in all of those other issues. You know, if we lose that and if we take that away, then our ability to be effective in advocacy on other things that we care about, because each of us, to a greater or lesser degree, care about different things. But our, the building block for so much of that is to be able to have our freedom and our freedom to speak in in particular and therefore so if we think let's just join the dots here with with Pavi Razanan so 
here is a extremely established person who very well known and liked within her society facing a, a prison sentence um for things that she has written almost 20 years ago for a tweet that is mostly just a picture of some bible verses and then for engaging in a in a debate um where uh, her phrasing of words on a live radio debate became out of context prosecution so situation like this um and then how why why do people care why should people care and particularly in other countries well i think that the warning here is if that can happen there then it can happen here too wherever here is and particularly uh, in the west in europe where there's the closest link uh and it can happen to you it can happen to me and i i think for me, it's, it, that is clear, but repeating it and saying it and trying to explain, look, this, if they can do that there, they can do it here. Would you, are, we, are you prepared for the last 20 years of your life? Imagine all of the podcasts that you've done, all of the, the output that you have done on social media, on Twitter. Imagine that over 20 years being combed through by the machinery of the state in order to find a phrase or a sentence or a soundbite that yeah. they could hold up and say, this is against the law, you know, because that's what we're dealing with here. And if we don't defend it there, then I think we will see this spread across the continent more and more. Because for me, this case is a new low bar on free speech. <laughs> I've worked on this for a long time. I say it goes all the way back to about 2007. And this yeah. is a new low bar. So if this results in a conviction of prosecution, successful prosecution, then the bar for free speech has got one step lower for all of us. If the Bible came out today, do you think it would be banned? I, yes, yeah. I, I think that, <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that yeah, crazy? <laughs> I, I think that they would love to ban the Bible, the Quran, and other religious texts, but they know they can't. But yeah, I think yeah. that they, there's a lot of, lot of parts of the Bible that would make them extremely uncomfortable. And in, in, an, in an interview in Finland, the, the general prosecutor had said on record that while, of course, people can own and even cite historical texts, and she used the Bible, the Koran, and Mein Kampf as examples, and said, but believing, following these texts, now that's a different thing altogether. So even in the mind of the prosecutor, that was in a, a published article, She's already putting these religious texts in a category of... With Mein Kampf. That's, yeah. wow. So That's I think crazy. they would. But, you know, the other thing is, I think that a lot of the protections that we have now, if we're talking about, for example, uh, human rights laws that were written, for example, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and other texts around that time, if the drafts of those laws were being presented today for signing and ratifying by countries, I also think they would not be uh, introduced in law either. And so we kind of have this dual <laughs> problem that there's a lot of, yeah, historical texts like the Bible, I think, would, would be banned today. And then there's also a lot of the protections would not be successfully adopted today by our countries, and it, which, again, just speaks to the casual way in which we're treating a lot of these freedoms, the casual way in which we are just yeah, just taking all of this for granted as if it would be here forever. It's crazy.
Paul, it's been so good to talk to you. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and going into depth on some of these issues. Where can people find you online? So uh, we have the ADF International uh, Twitter account, and and the webpage is adfinternational.org, and you can learn more about this case in particular there. And then our Twitter handle as well, uh, ADF Intel. And then my Twitter handle, Paul underscore ADF Intel. And yeah, that's probably the best places to go looking. Awesome. Paul Coleman, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunting you're destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and a bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.